When rates are rising and anxiety rushes in, asset prices get wobbly. Things start to spin. Inflation starts bubbling. Investors start to quiver. They can see their profits floating down the river. The Fed says, nah, we got this. There's no need to worry. So why are big stocks selling off in such a hurry? Is it really just big money moving from one sector to another? Or is the market feeling kind of vulnerable? Should we run for cover? Should we take our profits and get away from this mess? Can I kick it? Maybe we should just kick it with the Investopedia Express. 2021 has been loud for investors as many have rotated out of the mega cap technology stocks into the recovery sectors. Global economies are recovering all over the world at different speeds, but the trend is up and to the right. U.S. Treasury yields are rising, bringing real interest rates higher with them. Inflation's coming too, and you can see it in nearly every bill you pay. Demand's rushing back, but supply chains around the world are being stretched to their limits. Cargo ships from Asia are lined up for miles outside of the California ports, with billions of dollars in goods sitting out there on the sea. Shipping container shortages have led to a 165% increase in prices for those metal boxes in just the past year. Oil prices popped above $70 a barrel for the first time in more than a year after Saudi Arabia said its oil facilities were targeted by missiles and drones on Sunday. Crude oil prices are up more than 35% since the beginning of the year and are likely headed higher given this news and OPEC's recent decision to keep production cuts in place for the time being. Meanwhile, money keeps pouring into the U.S. equity market, but not to its favorite places from 2020. Energy, transportation, financials, and manufacturing stocks are in vogue this spring amid the recovery rally. The problem for index investors is that they just don't drive earnings multiples like the mega cap tech and consumer facing stocks do, so higher highs for the S&P 500 and the Nasdaq might become even more rare amid the recovery. We'll get into that with Savita Subramanian from Bank of America Securities later in the show. Senate Democrats passed President Biden's $1.9 trillion American rescue plan on Saturday by the slimmest of margins. The Senate voted along party lines, 50 to 49, after deliberating all of Friday and into Saturday morning. The package now heads back to the House, which must approve the Senate revised legislation before sending it to the White House for the president's signature. The House is expected to take up the measure on Tuesday. For the full details of the bill, including what's in it for small businesses, cities, and states, check out Investopedia.com. It's right there on our homepage. Let's get set up for the week ahead. U.S. telecom giants Verizon Communications, T-Mobile, and AT&T all hold big investor events this week. They'll be talking about their 5G futures for sure, but investors will have a lot of questions about their big media investments like Warner under AT&T and AOL and Yahoo under Verizon. Earnings season is winding down with companies reporting this week, including Dick's Sporting Goods, Oracle, Campbell Soup, JD.com, and DocuSign, among others. On Wednesday, Texas will lift its mask mandate and allow businesses to open at 100% capacity, despite the fact that only 6% of the state's population has been vaccinated. The Center for Disease Control says it's premature of Texas and other states to lift those restrictions, especially given the low vaccination rates and the new variants of the coronavirus that are appearing throughout the country. The labor market is strengthening in the U.S. and will get a sense of how many job openings there are and the degree of job mobility for workers when the JOLT survey is released on Thursday. February saw the addition of 379,000 new jobs, with most of those coming from the hospitality sector as businesses reopen. The European Central Bank will meet on Thursday to discuss interest rates. There's no room to cut, but if bond yield tantrums continue, the ECB may send a strong signal that the central bank will increase the pace of bond buying, if necessary, to hold rates down. 
Outside of the EU, the UK will report manufacturing and production results for the month of January. Outside of the EU, the UK will report manufacturing and production results for the month of February. Well, that seems like months ago. It was the UK's first month reporting results since Brexit. So this will give us a sense of how smoothly the transition went in the early days. Investor sentiment is a fickle thing. Just as bullishness rose to multi-year highs and record money flows poured into the equity market, a rise in treasury yields and fears of inflation have put a scare into stocks, especially the mega-cap tech and consumer-facing giants that have been the drivers of two years of robust returns. If only we could have seen this coming. Actually, some people did. People like Savita Subramanian, the head of equity and quantitative strategies at Bank of America Securities. Savita and her team have been writing about this trend way before it became headlines and have had their finger firmly on the pulse of big investors and where the money is moving. It's a real pleasure to have Savita on The Express with us. Welcome. Thanks, Caleb. Great to be here. I'm such a big fan of your research. I'm constantly citing it in my newsletters because it's so clear and it's so prescient. You've been writing about this asset rotation in the equities market for months, and it played out to form. This has been a very unusual 12 months. But how does this sort of new fear of rising interest rates and inflation affect investors and where they want to be going forward? Yeah, no, I think it's a great point because what we're seeing is very quick changes in the macro backdrop. And what I worry about for equities is the idea that the longstanding bullish argument for stocks for, you know, over 10 years now has been that there really aren't a lot of great alternatives for yield oriented investors. I mean, you've got, you know, close to zero rates in the U.S. You've got negative rates in many sovereigns. So, so the S&P has offered this scarcity, which is, you know, safe, uh, sustainable and potentially growing dividend yield. But now that you have this backup in the 10 year, what happens next? Maybe income-oriented investors go back to bonds. So we did some work looking at when income-oriented investors are more likely to shift out of equities into fixed income. And it's right around 175 on the 10-year where things get tricky and you start to see money flow out of equities and into bonds. So that's reason number one that I think that interest rates matter. Then when you look at the inflationary backdrop, again, a big change from the last 10 years. The last 10 years has been basically a a period of rampant disinflation, really no inflationary pressures, despite policymakers really trying to engineer a reflationary cycle. Now what we're seeing is a move from unprecedented zero economic activity to full run rate capacity over a very short period of time. And we think that's going to fray some of the areas of the global economy. And we're already seeing that in certain sectors like semiconductors. We're hearing from our analysts that more and more companies are citing cost pressure from their input goods, be it commodities, wages, other types of goods. So I, I think this all spells a scenario where either companies better see pricing power and be able to pass on that inflationary pressure to consumers, or we're going to see a margin squeeze. Right. And and you're already hearing the anecdotal information, too, about backups at the ports and all these containers out at sea. And you mentioned the semiconductors and the capacity, the lack of supply for the auto industry. It's all coming together because you're right. We went from a full stop to a very fast acceleration. You guys do such a good job at tracking the asset flows and the money flows on a weekly basis, both within the, the private and client universe and broadly across the investing landscape. And as you've been noting for the past few months, money flow has been pouring into equities, pouring into global equities, pouring into the same places where the market was so strong, big cap, large cap tech. But the market has been very soft over the past few weeks. 
Explain, though, how the money can be flowing in so aggressively, yet we still feel this pressure on the markets right now. Well, you know, I think it's really supply, demand, and how much are you willing to pay for growth? And I think what's interesting right now is that you pay that much for some of the big earnings acceleration stories. So when you think about big cap tech, these have been the market leaders for a very long time and then basically crescendoed last year when all we spent money on was tech, you know, work from home, basically favored online versus in-store retail. Um, You know, it just kind of everything conspired to create a perfect storm for technology, for online, for some of the disruptors. Now, I think what's, what's interesting is that we're seeing that investors have basically moved wholesale into that part of the market. Those stocks are trading at relatively elevated valuations. We're paying a lot for those stocks relative to what we're paying for consumer services goods. So if you think about it, a reopening should cause, and I think we all kind of know this just from you know being humans and being locked in our homes for the last year, we're probably going to get out of our houses. We're probably going to fly again. We're going to go to hotels. We're going to spend on services. We're going to the movies. So some of these areas that are really beaten down and kind of left for dead under the stay-at-home scenario are now incredibly inexpensive and are likely to see the biggest earnings acceleration stories. Whereas, you know, think about subscribing to another online movie channel. Probably not if we're all leaving our houses again. So, so I think that that's the incremental change that we need to think about from an earnings perspective. Where can you get the fastest earnings growth at the cheapest prices? And today, it's not mega cap tech. It's it's much more old economy sectors, services sectors, et cetera. Right. But to your point, you've written a lot about this concentration of the economic activity and the market cap concentration inside the big handful of companies, the Amazons of the world, internet communication stocks, the Alphabets and Facebooks. They generate so much of the S&P 500's profits. So if the concentration is in the big caps and they drive markets higher, as we know, because they're cap-weighted indexes, but the earnings growth is going to be coming from the, you know, the, the other sectors that don't have that kind of expansion. What would be the overall impact on the market in the next 6, 12 months? Yeah, I mean, this is the million-dollar question. I think this could be the surprise is that we see a really strong economic recovery. We see a pickup in inflation and kind of everything feels good in the economy and on Main Street. But the S&P 500 doesn't do all that well. And and if you think about it, as you mentioned, the allocation of the market towards large cap tech and stay at home beneficiaries is so extreme today that if we see those stocks seed leadership and the leadership actually emerges in smaller parts of the market, the S&P might not go straight up forever like it has for a very long time. In fact, our call on the S&P for, you know, through year end is, a 3,800 price target at year end. I mean, obviously, calling a price target is a, is a dangerous game. And But I think our outlook is not that the market is going to close at 3,800 at 4 p.m. on December 31st, but it's really more, this is a year where you probably want to be more neutral on large cap stocks and look for other places to really drive your alpha. So over the next 12 months, we're looking for more returns in smaller companies. We're looking for more returns in other equity markets outside of the U.S., like Europe, which is much more concentrated in energy, raw materials, industrials, kind of, you know, quote unquote, old economy stocks. So I think that's the shift we need to make is to say the idea that the S&P 500 is going to outperform every other index forever 
and instead move to other parts of the market that might be uh, less expensive and, and potentially have better upside. But our view on the S&P this year is multiple compression, earnings growth, strong economy, but not great asset inflation, especially for large cap U.S. stocks. So much of that was probably anticipated, which is why the market ran up to records so many times in the past few months, and even even just getting out of the, the downturn. Let's talk about some of the contrarian indicators and how they've played out over the last few months, maybe three, six months. When people got scared back at you know, March, April, obviously, the market got oversold, people went into fear mode, and then rallied into the fastest bear market recovery in history, right? Became overbought, as sentiment shifted. You track all this through the sentiment indicators at the bank. Uh, these are like normal animal spirits in abnormal times, but everything, Savita, seems so accelerated and moves so fast these days. Are you surprised by that? I am. I mean, I am and I'm not. I guess, you know, it's it's not that surprising if you think about information flow, which is happening at a, at a breakneck pace. So it does make sense that things are happening faster than they did, you know, 30 years ago when we all communicated by fax machines. But what does surprise me is sort of the maybe, I don't know if this is the right word, but the fickleness of investors. So we concentrate on one theme at a time and we express that theme very quickly. And then we shift to the next theme also very quickly. So it's a bit tough to be a fundamental investor where it feels like sentiment is driving so many of the large moves. In fact, last year, what was phenomenal to me is that we saw black swan events basically almost every other week. And the reason I say this is if you look at rotations of different styles, like growth versus value or high risk versus low risk, we saw two standard deviation or higher moves in some of these indices 26 times last year. These are supposed to be very rare events, and they happen 26 times over a period of 12 months. I mean, this is a a really unusual market environment where Folks are expressing bets in very extreme ways. And I think the way to navigate that is just to stick with fundamentals, have a longer time horizon, and ride out the volatility. If anything, use the volatility as an opportunity to add exposure to themes that you like for the long haul. But I think that where we are right now is a market that's trading much more on sentiment than on fundamentals. Now, the other metrics that we track in our work are measures of bullishness by Wall Street. And, you know, one of the most interesting and what I've found to be one of the most predictive measures of equity upside is this indicator called the sell side indicator. And we've been tracking this for, uh, you know, over 30 years. It's basically a very simple gauge. We just take the average allocation of Wall Street strategists to stocks, what they recommend you should put into stocks in your overall portfolio. We take that average allocation and we track that as a measure of how bullish or bearish Wall Street is on stocks. And what we found is that when Wall Street is very, very bullish on stocks and they're telling you stocks are going to go up forever, that's probably a better time to sell than to buy. And interestingly, we saw those levels of euphoria back in 2007. We saw them in 2000, right around the peak of the tech bubble. And in retrospect, those were obviously better times to sell than buy stocks. Now, what's dangerous is that today, we are just one percentage point shy of a sell signal on that indicator. So Wall Street strategists are now quite optimistic on stocks. They've moved their allocations up from, you know, something like 44% back in 2013 to close to 60% today. And what that means is that this bull market is not 
a sleeper. Everybody knows we're in a bull market. They're allocating funds to equities. This is an environment where we think that the consensus trade is to be bullish on equities, therefore do the opposite and potentially take a little bit off the table when it comes to U.S. large cap stocks. Reminds me a little of the Warren Buffett saying, be fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful. Which, but, Exactly. But this is just happening so fast, as you mentioned earlier. The, the swings are happening so quickly. So, so where would you say and where does the bank think we are? Are we in a new bull market, a cyclical bull market, at the end of a long secular bull market? Where do you position us now? You know, I think we're at the beginnings of a potentially a low returns environment for asset classes overall. You know, I think that the asset allocation decision is still fairly comfortable for me to say I prefer stocks over bonds, because if you are in a rising interest rate and inflationary period, stocks are going to do better. They can raise their dividends. They, you know, earnings participate in inflation, whereas bonds and fixed income are just that their income is fixed and capped. So they get hurt when interest rates rise. You know, I do think, though, that we should prepare ourselves for a lower return environment. In fact, when I started the strategy job back in 2011, our valuation models, which are probably the most predictive models of long-term returns, they were spitting out, you know, double-digit returns over the next 10 years. That was, that was about 10 years ago. Now, today, when I look at our valuation models, they're spitting out something closer to 3 to 4% returns for the S&P 500 per annum over the next 10 years. It's not great. It's below average levels of equity returns, but it's arguably still better than most fixed income instruments with a similar level of quality. So, you know, I think it's time to diversify, to look for other spots to get your equity exposure besides the S&P 500. And I think that's going to be a really strong way to make money. I mean, even this year is a little bit of a microcosm. We started the year with energy, one of the smallest sectors in the S&P 500, crushing it. So, you know, I think those are the types of surprises we're going to see this year as we move forward with the reopening and the economic recovery. But I think what's important to remind investors is that equities, especially U.S. large cap equities, are not necessarily a mirror image of the economy. So that's what I would leave investors with. Yeah. And we've, we've seen such good examples of that in the last 12 months, for sure. The economy and the stock market, not the same, sometimes related, sometimes walking hand in hand, most of the time disconnected, but at times very extreme. So back to the point, how would you advise your 25-year-old self if you were starting to put money to work now? You don't have to be tactical, but in general, in terms of the overall thinking. You know what I would do? I think I would stick with some of the advice that I received 20 years ago, which is buy small cap value stocks. Those are basically, from a risk reward perspective, they're very volatile. They're the most volatile of the size and style buckets within the United States. But if you can stomach volatility and you have a long time horizon, they actually offer the strongest risk adjusted returns. And right now, small cap value stocks are unusually inexpensive. So I think that's that's rule number one. Rule number two, I would diversify. And I mean, this is boring advice, but diversification is one of the easiest ways to smooth the loss structure of your portfolio. I would diversify into real assets, equities, fixed income for the long term, inflation protected equities like dividend growth stocks. I think that's another theme that's that's likely to have some traction over the next 20 years. And, you know, I would also look to areas of the market that aren't necessarily as well vaunted. So, 
you know, one of the themes that we've been writing about is ESG investing or environmental, social, and governance investing. I think that's going to be a theme for the decades. This is not just a fad. It's not just a feel-good metric. But what we're finding is that ESG characteristics are actually driving meaningful differentiations between good and bad stock performance. So I would look for companies that are running themselves responsibly, are geared towards a future of limited resources. So for example, within the energy sector, I still think you can buy traditional energy stocks, but make sure that these companies are acknowledging a transition to a carbon neutral future. I think that's the trick is to look for the companies that are adapting to uh, to this new climate and uh, social environment that we find ourselves in today. And more and more of them are doing that. You're hearing announcements almost on the weekly from the big automakers, from the big uh, energy and the big production firms. And I know that you're putting together with your team, your own database based on proprietary ESG and ICE measures, as well as sort of an, an AI driven data set to look at these companies, to be able to screen them for, for investors. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yes. So we are working with the Intercontinental Exchange or ICE to basically build a top class data set of all of the ESG measures you could think of. So, you know, for example, within the social space, we're looking at factors like, does this company offer a diversity program around ethnic diversity? Does this company offer a diversity program around LGBTQ? Does this company offer a diversity program around veterans? So we're getting very granular. And in addition to just looking at, you know, percentage of women or percentage of persons of color, we're also looking at the barest bones to see whether companies have, you know, interesting programs around work-life flexibility, parental leave, etc. What we're finding is amazing in that we're finding that companies that do focus on diversity by a variety of these measures are actually outperforming their fears, not just on a performance basis, but on a fundamental basis. Their returns on equity are higher than those of of peers that are more homogenous. Their earnings risk is much lower than companies with more homogenous boards or management teams or workforces. So we're really seeing the fact that diversity of workplace, be it through gender, LGBTQ, persons of color or ethnic diversity are driving thought diversity. And that's actually tamping down earnings risk and creating better returns on investment. I think it's also interesting to look at the financial crisis. And we published on this a few years ago, one of the big risks about that financials revealed relative to other sectors in the S&P 500 during the period from 2005 to 2007 was that financial companies actually had less diverse boards and management teams than other companies. And I think that in part that contributed to some of the groupthink that actually caused a lot of the risks uh, within the financial sectors during 2008-2009. So, I mean, some of these indicators are actually more important than looking at the traditional metrics we learned about in business school, like, you know, leverage ratios or Altman Z-scores. I mean, we've actually found that ESG factors can be better predictors of bankruptcy risk than some of the traditional financial measures that we're used to using. 
The performance is definitely there, not just across ESG, but if you look at SRI as well. So performance is there, and this movement towards stakeholder capitalism in general is a great awakening of consciousness among investors around the financial services industry, and it's a long time coming. So very cool that you guys are doing that, and and I think it's going to be very helpful for people looking for where they want to allocate their money, because I think it's about you know more soulful choices on the part of investors, hopefully going forward. Savita, so good to have you with us on The Express. Thank you for your time, and we appreciate you and all the work that you and your team do. Thanks, Caleb. Great to be here. It's terminology time. Time for us to get smart with the investing or finance term the educated investor needs to know this week. This week's term comes to us courtesy of Trent in Kailua, Kona, Hawaii. Aloha, Trent. How's it? A lot of you have been asking for this one, but Trent from the great state of Hawaii was first to submit his entry, and he'll be getting a pair of the devastatingly handsome Investopedia socks in the mail very soon. Trent, you're going to need those socks for the post-surf session bonfires on the beach. Trent wants to know what NFTs are, those non-fungible tokens that everyone's talking about lately. Well, according to my favorite website, NFTs are digital certificates that authenticate a claim of ownership to an asset and allow it to be transferred or sold. The certificates are secured with blockchain technology similar to what underpins Bitcoin and the other cryptocurrencies. Blockchain, for those of you that are wondering, is a decentralized alternative to a central database. Blockchains usually store information in encrypted form across a peer-to-peer network, which makes them very difficult to hack or tamper with. This in turn makes them useful for keeping important records like NFTs. The key difference between NFTs and cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin is that currencies allow fungible trade, which means anyone can create Bitcoins that can be exchanged for other Bitcoins. NFTs, those non-fungible tokens, are by definition non-fungible and are deployed as individual chains of ownership to track a specific asset. NFTs are designed to uniquely restrict and represent a unique claim on an asset. NFTs are used to claim ownership of a digital asset that is otherwise completely copyable, pasteable, or shareable, like a movie, JPEG, or digital file. You know what I'm talking about. So we're seeing a lot of musicians and artists upload original pieces of work on the internet with unique, non-fungible tokens that prove their authenticity. That authenticity is helping them emphasize the uniqueness of their work, which helps them charge steep premiums. For example, the digital artist Beeple just made a piece called Crossroad that sold for $6.6 million. Grimes, the musician, sold $6 million worth of her artwork and music. And there's plenty of marketplaces where you can buy and sell NFTs. Nifty Gateway, Maker's Place, Super Rare, OpenSea, Decentraland, and Rarible are just a few of many. The NBA is already in the game with collectibles being sold on NBA Top Shot, where $230 million of merchandise has already been spent, including a unique JPEG of LeBron James on his way to one of those monster dunks. In the music world, some artists like Kings of Leon are using a platform called Yellowheart to release their various album NFTs. Yellowheart is a music-centric platform that ensures authenticity of concert tickets and seeks to prevent scalping using the blockchain. It could be the future of concert going and may actually put the power back into the artist's hands and help them hold on to more of their royalties. Hey, even Jack Dorsey, the founder of Twitter's in the game, he's offering to sell his very first tweet as an NFT. The Twitter CEO shared a link to the platform named Valuables on Friday, where his first tweet from March 2006 is up for grabs in case you want to own that. Well, we'll let the legendary Muriel Siebert take us out this week. Muriel Mickey Siebert, as she was known, was also known as the first woman of Wall Street. She was the first woman to buy her own seat on the New York Stock Exchange, and that was all the way back in 1967. And she built a very successful firm that still carries her name today. 
In honor of Women's History Month, here's Mickey in a PBS interview from 1999. At one time, I learned how to trade blocks of stock, and it enabled me to make the money to buy the seat. And I traded control of companies. This is what I loved about the exchange. When I joined the exchange, your word was your bond, and you would go broke before you broke your word. The great Mickey Seberg, word is bond. And that's the final word from us this week. If you're looking for more Investopedia goodness, sign up for a few of our daily newsletters, including The Express, out every weekday morning. We're on TikTok now, too, and no rapping there, I promise. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you.